Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Angela Yee, host of Angela Yee's Lip Service. If you listen to my podcast, you know I love making space for women to be themselves. That's why I'm excited to be part of Women Take the Mic, iHeartRadio's celebration of the women who make music, influence change, and create culture. All month long, your favorite voices from talk radio, music, and podcasting will highlight the remarkable achievements made by women and discuss the most significant issues facing us today. Head to iHeartRadio.com slash Women's Day for more. And listen to Women Take the Mic on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Podcast Playground. Hooray! Taking a walk with Buzz Knight. Well, hi, this is Buzz Knight, and I'm the host of the Taking a Walk podcast series. Welcome to our special Greenwich Village series. Now, when we think of the term musical range, I think you really do have to think of Greenwich Village in the sense that uh, in the 60s, uh, the village was such a hotbed of styles and personalities. There was a core backbone, certainly, around singer-songwriting and folk singing, but it was really this incredible range. There were poets, and it was just this uh, alive feeling that was going on. You still feel it to this day, but definitely different in the 60s. So it's rather fitting that our guest on Taking a Walk is no stranger himself to musical range. Richard Barone is our guest, and as a recording artist with the band The Bongos, he has demonstrated that. Also, as a producer, he's demonstrated his range. As a professor, he has demonstrated his range. And as an author, he also demonstrates his musical range and his passion for music. He spans decades navigating um, the musical nuances of the village with his great new book, Music and Revolution, and uh, it's about Greenwich Village in the 60s, and by the end you will be transported in time. You will feel like, uh, through a meditation, that you were part of it. So. Richard, it's so awesome to meet you, and thank you for taking a walk. Thank you. I love taking a walk. It's it's great to uh, 
to, to meet you, and uh, what made you write the book? Mm. It was a long process, and like you said, it was a meditation, and it was a growing obsession for me, living in the village, wanting to know what made it the village, like what made it such a hotbed of creative styles. And you know, it's, it's a big story. It's a big story, almost too big for one. It's rarely put in one place, let me put it that way. Because it really starts with this community that grew over a long period of time that was not part of New York City yet, um, that is, was a little apart from what Manhattan was, much lower Manhattan. And this was sort of, this was a tobacco field or whatever. It was always a unique landscape. Um, and with the Native American, the, the Lenape tribe that was here, um, the pads that were built are really the streets of the village still. So if you look on any map of, of uh, New York, you'll see a grid. You'll see a grid for most of Manhattan, except for Greenwich Village and a few areas below Greenwich Village, in which the, the streets are winding because they're paths based on Dutch traders' paths and, and Native American paths. And when the grid was built, the, the residents of Greenwich Village refused to be on the grid. And that's symbolic. Uh, just simply one element what makes Greenwich Village just always unique. It's not on the grid. I mean, that's a symbol. Just that is such a metaphor. It sure is. And uh, can you talk about the Save the Village uh, oh, well, movement? Sure. I mean, that was, you know, there was actually there was more than one. I mean, there was one that was we see signs of in photos if you look online. Uh, Save the Village. There was always attempts to get rid of the village. There is now. I was talking to my students yesterday at the new school, and they were talking about how the, uh, some of them were complaining that this is not in classroom. This was just in a lobby area where I was visiting and saying hello. They were talking about how musicians being arrested now for playing music in Washington Square Park. This is something that was resolved really in 1961 with what they call the Beatnik Riots that I cover in the book, in which musicians stood up to authorities and said, we, are, we do have every right to play music here. So, it's, But yet still, in 2022, some musicians for playing a guitar or bongo drum in the park are being arrested. So there's always this kind of trying to... And it's, it's futile. Because the village is always, hello, thank you. The village is always going to be the village, no matter what. No matter what authority says you can't play music here, or you can't do this, or you can't have this kind of nightclub, or whatever. It's going to be defied by the villagers, by the people that live here and people that, that uh, come here. Now, if we were here on a, uh, a Sunday in the summer in, in the 60s... Mm. Uh, and the 50s. In the 50s. Uh, yeah. Sundays in the square, as yeah. you describe it. Whoa! would we be seeing and feeling and sensing? It's a fantastic gathering of musicians of every, of not every style, but of many styles. Let me put it that way. Flamenco guitarists in one corner, bluegrass banjo players in another corner, folk singing, uh, folk traditionalists in the center, maybe by the fountain, uh, trading folk songs. Um, you know, you mentioned, we were talking earlier, you mentioned the singer-songwriter movement. Well, that evolved, because at first it was not about writing your own songs, it was in, um, retaining, and like a, almost like musicology in a way, of studying and, and interpreting very old songs. So you'd be at Washington Square Park and you'd hear some really old folk songs. You know, people trading them, say, have you heard this and have you heard that? And then, and then the, th the thing that happened that was magical is that these styles merged. 
so that the uh, folk singers would hear the bluegrass banjo in their next corner, or hear the flamenco guitar, or hear the blues guitar players. And the styles started merging, because they're in a park, in the same park. It's not that big of a park. Uh, and yet every sort of every faction of music had a, a pocket in it, you know? But the music started to merge, because they would notice wow, that's pretty cool, or that's pretty nice. And they would, so he's got a lot of mixing of styles. It could only happen here. It seems, well, it seems like it could only happen here. New York especially had such an influx of different types of people and immigrants and everything that the park was a meeting place for all those different things. You know, so that's why the music came together in that way. Yeah, there's a great picture in the book of uh, which really lays it out to me, and I'm sure there's other you know examples of it where there's this picture of Patti Smith. Oh yeah, I love with that. Eric Anderson. Love it. I mean, you know, two people coming at the world definitely from a different yes. a different space. Wasn't Patti doing poetry at that? She point? was doing poetry, but you know, slowly putting music into her poetry, and that was that was really there was a precedent for that in the fif- late fifties. When the beat poets were performing here in the village on McDougal Street at uh, the Gaslight, for instance, and other places, that was really a poetry club. It was the Gaslight Poetry Club. And uh, they had musical interludes. So a poet would read or recite, and then they'd take a 15-minute br- break, and there would be a musician. So that kind of that came together there too, the idea of the music and poetry. And of course, um, Jack Kerouac and other beat writers uh, befriended David Amram. Do you know who David Amram? So uh, David Amram, who's performing with me, he does often. I love him. Uh, and he's ninety. He's in his nineties. He's just a. He's a, to me, he's a teenager. But he's a ninety-one-year-old teenager. I love it. He uh, played with Jack. He, he composed music for Jack Kerouac's writings, and they did a, 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 a very famous beatnik movie called uh, "Pull My Daisy." That's quite fascinating. I saw it when I was in film school, and it was just a thrill then to later meet David Amram. Like many of the artists that I met, have met in my life and career, I studied them first. Uh, Jonas Mikus, who I write about in the book, with, with the avant-garde film movement of the uh, 60s. I had already studied his work and then ended up being, his, uh, being mentored by him. Um, and Pete Seeger, who I adored on television as a child and seeing him, you know, perform his songs that really moved me, I got to produce his last record, his last single. Wow. Awesome. You know, so I've, I've been blessed with that, and I was able to use some of this these um, friendships in the book in different ways. They, their voices come through me sure. throughout the story. Well, yeah, I love it how uh, Donovan's voice comes yeah. through you. Donovan's voice and Tiny Tim. Yeah, don't forget Tiny Tim. And he was he was a great early mentor when I was a teenager. Yeah. And also um, uh, Happy Trom. Happy Trom is great. Happy Trom. You know, has the last scene in the book too. I love that. Yeah, I think I do too. Well, you know, it was my. I love that part of the book. I didn't know how to end the story because it is a story. When people read *Music and Revolution*, they're going to find it as almost like a novel. I think, in some ways, except that it happens to be all true. Right. (laughs) It's a nonfiction novel, and I didn't know how it ended. To me, it doesn't end because the village continues. I'm here. We're here now, but. 
the ending came to me from my students. It, it um, we were studying the beatnik riot in which the musicians had an uprising to. It wasn't not really a riot, by the way. It was just a protest to allow music to be played in Washington Square Park. But my students, uh, one student raised her hand and said, you know, you know, professor, can we go there? And I'm going go for a moment. There was like, go where? She said, go to the park. And I said, okay. And she said, and play music on a Sunday. And I thought, yes, let's do it. So Happy Trump happened to be our guest that day in the classroom on Zoom because of the pandemic. He was on Zoom, but he was in our classroom. And uh, and so I said, Happy, would you like to join us there? So that so he did. So we 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 got together on a Sunday in the park, and it was just a beautiful, uh, well, meeting of generations. Also, my young students, they're like they're roughly 20 years old, and then Happy, they're, you know, as you know, he was here in '61. He was at those. He was nearly arrested at the riots. He was roughed up by cops. It's in a film called Sunday. You, people can find on YouTube. Oh, wow. The film is called Sunday by uh, Dan Drazen, I believe is the correct pronunciation of his last name. We even had Dan Drazen on the on FaceTime on the phone while this is while we remet on that Sunday in 2021. Oh wow, how special! So uh, and Happy Trom was there, and I handed him my guitar, and it just felt such like a it would have ha- it could have happened 50 years ago or whatever whatever the time frame is. It was timeless. A timeless moment, and that ending came to me from my students because as we met in the park, it just seemed to wrap up my story. Yeah, it did beautifully. Thank you. I love the lunch that you described with Barry Kornfeld. That was here, yeah. right where we're right, right where here. we're right now, yeah. right where we're sitting. Talk about that. Well, Barry Kornfeld, you know, people kept mentioning to me, oh, I, I should interview him. I did 80 interviews for the book. But not 80 different people. Some of them were multiple interviews. As the book progressed over a period of a year, I would call them at all hours of the day and night to say, wait a minute, what is that? Or, wait a minute, what did you say about this? Help me understand this. Because some scenes were hard for me to really get my head around. Some competitions between artists, some romances. It's like, but wait, I mean, how does this, how did this work? Or Terry Thal as an interviewee who managed Bob Dylan and others was a wealth of information. But she recommended I speak to Barry Kornfeld. Now, I knew his name from records because on Simon and Garfunkel records, on I think Bob Dylan, on some recordings of Bob Dylan, I believe, but other records, I always saw Barry Kornfeld's name. So I thought I should meet him, and I really had a fantastic talk with him the way that we're talking now but he opened up about just how how I got a great sense of how it felt to be there and also to be not a celebrity but to be the accompanist to celebrities see he really the story comes through him in a beautiful way it was Donovan who told me speak to the ones who no one knows who know the, the names that are not known because that's where the story is that's where your story is that's what Donovan told me I love that well so let's talk there's so many names that yeah. what I think is so beautiful about the book there's names that people may know and then there's names that may not know yeah. there's some obviously that are alive there's many many have passed so yeah. maybe we can touch on a, a few of these these names absolutely uh, resonate in my heart uh, Richard and Mimi Farina yeah well it's one of the that story has an elements of scandal because Richard was married to Carolyn Hester at the time. Now, that's another name who some people may not know, but she was, I think, a superstar of folk music. She was on the cover of magazines, Saturday Evening Post. Rather Pits- ravishing, I might beautiful, say. Beautiful, 
beautiful and known as the Texas Songbird. She was had a, a ravishing voice as well as her physical appearance. She was beautiful. And she had a great look with, you know, folks who were wearing high heels. She was a very sexy gal. Still is. Um, a fabulous singer, personality, and, you know, a, an archetype of the female singer-songwriter of the early 60s. I think uh, who, may, who created a template that was then copied by others. I don't want to say Joan Baez imitated her, but Joan Baez does sometimes really sound like her. And she did come after I can say that. And I didn't interview Joan for this book. Uh, some For some characters, especially ones who did not live in Greenwich Village, I went to other sources. For instance footage of other of interviews they did especially if it was contemporaneous to the book or 60s interviews but even if it was more recent for Joan I got some wonderful footage uh, from BBC tele, uh, television uh, and they had done a special on her and she really opened up and certain things were so personal I don't think I could have asked oh, wow but she did talk about them in that program yep. so that is in the book I was able to use some wonderful sources besides my own interviews yep. and I interviewed almost every day so I was I did a lot of talking during the writing of this book and, in, and a lot more listening um but yes, you were asking about, um, we, we talked about Barry Kornfeld, but you were asking about, I'm sorry, could you... Uh, well, Richard and Mimi. Oh, Richard and Mimi, of course. So Carolyn Hester was married to Richard, and he blew into town a wild, kind of a wild man, a wild guy, you know, and he was, she met him at an Irish pub, uh, bar, Irish uh, legendary tavern called the White Horse Tavern. Now, that was a hangout. Dylan would be there and soaking in a lot of the Irish folk songs that then became his <laughs> familiar songs, uh, to be honest. Uh, and Richard uh, Farina was there. The Clancy brothers, who were very, very important figures in this in the early Greenwich Village scene in the 60s. The Clancy brothers were an Irish bunch of brothers who were actually actors. They were actors, and they had set up uh, camp at the Cherry Lane Theater in the village, which is still there, a great theater. And they were trying to bring Irish plays. But they also loved music. They were musicians as well, and they started doing shows at night to raise money for to fund their theater, to fund their theater rental and from fund putting on plays. And so uh, that they were important, and they were often at the White Horse Tavern. It was an Irish uh, pub, and Richard was hanging out there. Uh, met Carolyn Hester, swept her off her feet, off her high heels, <laughs> and um, they had a whirlwind romance and a marriage. They got married, but you know it was troubled. And the book lays it out. I did a lot of interviews with Carolyn. I uh, I adore her, and I her stories were just so colorful and fa- fantastic. Yeah. Uh, but she had a whirlwind romance and marriage. But you know, he had his ways. He was very. He wanted to be part of the act. Now Carolyn was already established as quite a fantastic solo folk singer. Yes. And, but he kind of found his way on stage with her, and I think it was there was some awkward. There was some something awkward about it. Yeah. Also, he wasn't really a folk singer. She didn't consider him a folk singer. She's from the tradition where you really learn the songs. You play hoot nannies. If the listeners don't know, hoot nannies are like the equivalent of a jazz jam session, but for folk music. And people just pick up an instrument and play, and everybody trades songs. Well, you know, he never did all that. Like, he didn't pay his dues, let's put it that way. So it wasn't appropriate for her, in her mind, and maybe in my mind, that he would join her on stage so much and become her manager and agent. It was just too much. Yeah. It became troubled. But then, 
she, she was rolling with that. But it was then, uh, some, uh, somehow then in, in France on a trip, he met Mimi Farina, who I believe was 16. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm telling you. And that's the sister of Joan Baez. I was going to say. So it's Mimi Baez. And, you know, she's adorable. In fact, other people I interviewed, and I'm not sure if I put this in the book, because, you know, I, I couldn't write everything. I only had 300 pages to work with. So John Sebastian and others told me that he... Let me just say, he would be speechless in Mimi Baez's presence because of her beauty and charm. Speechless. And John, John Sebastian is rarely speechless. Well, and, you know, obviously, Joan Baez, rather... Fabulous. Just, Commanding presence. Commanding, right? Yeah. Um, and her sister, in a different way, also. So, anyway, Richard fell for Mimi. And, you know, they had a whirlwind marriage. They had a whirlwind marriage that ended in a tragedy on Mimi's 21st birthday. You know, it's, it was a whirlwind. But they, but I do think, and this is where I may be in disagreement, maybe with Carolyn Hester, even though I, do, I love her, is that I think he did some amazing music. And I play it for my students. Like, he was able to, uh, we talked about the poetry. He was very poetic in his lyrics. He was a writer, had written a novel, which Carolyn had to type most of it up for him. Really? <laughs> yes. Wow. She had a, she had a rough time, I think, with him. But... Um, Yes, he his his uh, songs were interesting, and I mean he was I think, and I say in the book that I think he was giving Bob Dylan a run for his money during a certain period. I think that's right. Yeah, I think, I think there was, was a certain moment of his timing, maybe that yeah. wasn't quite yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they weren't they weren't a, you know they weren't the Columbia Records. But Dylan was signed to Columbia. Yes, they had he had the clout of Columbia Records. Uh, Richard and Mimi were on like was it Vanguard or some some other label, which would not have had the facilities to promote in the same way. I'm just saying that as an aside. Sure. That's not to say any quality, and that's not about the quality or anything, but I do think they made some wonderful records, and they had such a charm, charming presence as the, do, as the husband and wife, Richard and Mimi. I couldn't help thinking about them maybe a little bit with uh, some of the characters in the Coen brothers inside Lewin Davis a little bit maybe. Yeah, Yeah. and especially with them, I see them uh, reflected in the movie uh, A Mighty Wind. Oh, definitely. (laughs) Exactly. Actually, on a uh, uh, earlier version of the Take on a Walk podcast, uh, Ed Begley Jr. uh, was part of it. Yeah, yeah. He's part of that whole troupe. Uh, A few other names. Sure. Janice Ian. Oh, Janice Ian. What a story. And I love her, too. I've worked with her. And, um... Have sang, I believe I believe we've been sung together at the bottom line here in the village. Wow! Because uh, we wrote songs for a woman named Marty Jones in the '80s. We both wrote for her, and then we had a, a, a concert in which we sang then the songs that we wrote for Marty Jones uh, together. It was really cool. But uh, Janice is uh, was because now she's an adult, so we can't call her a prodigy. Right. But she was a prodigy. I think she was 13 when she first performed in Greenwich Village. Really? Yeah. And I believe she was 13 when she started writing Society's Child. Oh, no kidding. But, you know, of course, the thing was, uh, it's uh, it's quite a story about how that song then, uh, the difficulty it had being played on the radio because it was about interracial romance between teenagers. Right. and she, she you know, say 14-ish, 14, you know, it came out when she was 15, but she had already had the song written and had gotten a producer. They just couldn't land a record deal. And when they finally did, uh, then they had, it was like almost blacklisted, it couldn't be played until Leonard Bernstein, uh, Bernstein, 
<laughs> Bernstein, Bernstein, Leonard Bernstein. Yeah, let's say that. I, I like either. They're both great. It's a great name, yeah. and he's just his name is so weighty. Lenny. Is, yeah, right. Well, you know, to some, to me, I'd never actually met him, even though so I, I met his daughter many times, uh, Jamie. But uh, but, but uh, Leonard was, had a television special about pop music and presented Janice Ian as a then 14 or 15-year-old on his show. And he analyzed the song musically and lyrically and explained it to the country. This was on a CBS or NBC television special. And so when he did that, that then people had to accepted because you know he, they had the sign of sign of approval the seal of approval of Leonard and it became it was able to be then a hit record for Janice at a young age so she was by 15 then she was touring uh, in large you know good venues promoting it but she took a lot of backlash on the stage because of this subject matter interesting yeah and it was just it was something and I write about it in the book it came out of a personal experience at her own school that she witnessed I think so and that was uh, the beginning certainly of FM radio which yes. allows for some of the handcuffs to be taken off right so a lot of this music that a part of the scene the reason this scene took off now one thing about the Greenwich Village scene that's very very important that we should not m- miss out on saying on your show is that this was the not just singer-songwriters this was the origin of the singer-songwriter movement I believe mm-hmm. here because it was a folk scene you know, there's jazz in the neighborhood, and they were musicians were always listening to jazz. Sure. Some of these folk singers, they get off stage and go right to a jazz club, and then when they made records, the musicians that are backing them are jazz musicians, like Bill Lee, who was uh, Spike Lee's father, and other musicians who were jazz players were the backing bands, but it was folk music. Carolyn Hester had Bill Lee on her albums, and he's a great bass player, but jazz. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, also, too, I mean, you talk about this, I mean, you know, the Chambers Brothers breaking out in terms of what, you know, their music signified. It was really this explosion of different things all coming together. Just fantastic. So this, yeah, everything was really cranking here in terms of just, you know, influences, like you said earlier, colliding. Jose Feliciano. Wow, he blew people away. He was just blind kid, Puerto Rican, comes in, and again, different, they were all different... You know, we don't um, think of it, but all these people are different ethnic backgrounds. I mean, you know, Richie Havens is on the scene. There's a, there are a few African Americans. There's not so many, but there's like Native Americans with with uh, several Patrick Sky and of course Buffy Saint Marie, and you know, um, and the one you just mentioned was Jose, a Latin, a, you know, a Latino, um, and he is blind, and he is. Fly on the guitar. People, John Sebastian always has the quote. He was like, you, oh, no, actually, this quote might come from Dave Van Ronk, where you can't do that with a guitar. Right. It's impossible, you know. Yeah. But, of course, he did. He was a, he is still a fantastic player. Yeah. And he was a wonderful interview. I got to, a lot of these artists I got to meet when I produced a concert in Central Park in 2018, also called Music and Revolution. Okay. And I had John Sebastian, I had Jesse Colin Young, I had, oh, many, and Jose Feliciano, and Melanie. And a lot of the artists that I write about, or at least mention, Melanie came a little bit later in the scene, so she's not part of the the story of Greenwich Village that I write. But she's there, and she appears in the later part. Uh, 
but they were they performed perform together on stage. Some of these little tiny bits of interviews sometimes happened during the concert because we would talk, uh-huh. and I was on stage announcing, and I was playing with them, playing bass for a lot many of the artists. Oh wow! And, and I would say, well, John, what about this? And he would, yeah, I don't like that. You know, he would. Some of these little mini quotes that are in the book sometimes came from what happened on stage with me with them. Yeah. Um, Fred Neal. Fred Neal. Oh my goodness. Oh wow. Well, Fred Neal. Fred Neal was a very not just a talent. He was also a great um, host of the uh, Cafe Wa afternoon shows, which was the first Bob Dylan performance in this in the city playing harmonica for Fred Neal, because he had these afternoon. They became a little scene, an afternoon scene. It wasn't. It was a twenty-four hour circus here. It wasn't just nighttime. I think so. So by the afternoons, after breakfast or lunch, there was already the club scene happening at the Cafe Wa, and Fred Neal was the host. So he was a fantastic songwriter, but also took his, I believe, took that, that job as being the host of the afternoon shows and the ringmaster as a serious, he took it seriously. So he was bringing in, he brought in artists like Dylan, he, or allowed them to be there, and, and uh, Karen Dalton, who's a name now uh, nearly forgotten, but fantastic artist. There's a recent documentary about Karen Dalton. She, she's like Billie Holiday or something. She sings in this scorched earth kind of expressionistic vocal style that's now modern. Wow, interesting. Yeah, I mean, think Amy Winehouse or you know some other artists that have this very stylized way of singing. Well, Karen Dalton was doing that as well in the early '60s, and she was Fred Neal brought her into the scene. He was she would sing with him. You know, Fred Neal was a great um, what's the word like a conduit as well as being a fantastic songwriter. Not just everybody's talking, but uh, but the unique thing about him, and I wrote about it in the book, is that many of his songs are about leaving New York, where other people were quite other other people on the scene were quite thrilled to be, especially. Like Van Ronk, who said, "Why would I go anywhere else? I'm already here." Right. He, Fred Neal, is always talking about you know going where the sun keeps shining through the pouring rain. He was going. He wanted to go to Florida or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? And uh, his songs are fantastic, and they last for they'll last forever. How great is it that David Chase and his musical uh, uh, advisors for the Sopranos yeah, put um, yeah. uh, that scene that uh, the Dolphins? Yes, yeah, because he was so uh, interested in the Dolphins, and he gave all of the money to Dolphin re- um, protection. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just so beautiful that yeah. people get to, you know, rediscover or discover an artist like yeah, that for the yeah. first time. I love that. And one last thing about Fred Neal that's interesting too is that his songs became known not by his own performances so much but by the cover versions also mm-hmm. because even the Jefferson Airplane did his song uh, The Other Side to This Life that's the, that's the correct title they, yep. might have, they, might have, they might have messed it up but The Other Side to This Life which is about being a musician in the city it's very specific it's about the it's not an easy life you know, it's not as glamorous as it may look kind right. of story. and they, they took it and they made like a jam a San Francisco style jam session out of it but it actually was written by Fred Neal yep wow I love it yeah and then there's somebody else that uh, I mentioned when we spoke on the phone that I love how you you told the story of Phil Oaks oh yeah uh, what a uh, brilliant uh, performer singer songwriter obviously uh, tremendously tortured in his own r- regard as well but just a a brilliant musician and uh, talk about him and in particular uh, his view of the world which led to certainly you know 
protest songs that, that he uh, he wrote and led the way on. And he also wrote many other types of songs. And he was very poetic, but he was people know him for his political songs because he was the most political on the scene, the most outwardly political. Now, why do I say that? Because other ones, Buffy St. Marie was too. Well, Phil was vis- visibly on the front lines at many of the Vietnam protests and other... There, Phil was always there in the front lines visibly as a protester and his songs he wrote sometimes he wrote anthems that would just well, they're, I think they're timeless now some people say well that's just suited for the Vietnam War era but they're not like I ain't marching anymore doesn't mention Vietnam once it just says I ain't marching anymore I'm not going to war and he did you know he was in the ROTC when he was in high school or early years of college he got out of it but he did march right and he became you know one he didn't he didn't believe in the war machinery and and the uh, what is the word the the uh, industrial the military industrial complex I think that's the phrase yeah. you know he really was against that now his his all of that was it was painful when his message didn't maybe he felt it wasn't always coming through and secondly there's many folds to this drama Secondly, that he wasn't also taken seriously as a poet, because I think he saw himself as a writer, not just of protests, but of poetry. Like his song, for instance, Changes, is really one of the most beautifully poetic songs of that era. Sure is. And he wrote that. I mean, I think, you know, sometimes I perform that as a mashup with Blown in the Wind. I do it as a conversation between Bob Dylan and Phil Oaks. Oh, wow. Because, in heaven, of course, Phil in heaven, Bill here. I mean, Bob here. You know, because. Why? Because... They were at odds with each other often. Uh, Phil Oaks deeply admired Bob Dylan and thought he was the best. He said that because when Phil Oaks arrived in New York, he said, my first goal was to be the best songwriter in the world. A couple of Ferraris. (laughs) But... um, so Phil Oaks arrived in the village wanting to be the best songwriter I think he said in the world I don't think he said just in Greenwich Village or in New York I think he said in the world and then he met Bob Dylan and said okay I'll be the second best <laughs> so he was he gave credit where credit was due sure but Bob gave him a hard time Bob Dylan I mean I shouldn't say first names because I, I don't know him yeah but uh, Dylan gave him a hard time and uh, often said you're not really a poet you're just a journalist now it's true that Phil Oaks was a journalist student and a journalist who wrote for many magazines. Did you know that? No, he wrote for many magazines. He wrote for a lot of these, I guess you call them fanzines of the folk music scene. He wrote reviews of the albums. He was a, he was a journalist. He was a writer. So Bob Dylan wasn't really wrong. I had to I had to qualify that in the book. Wow, is this the loudest corner ever? <laughs> yeah, well, I live at when the Ferraris go by. Yeah, everything uh, happens. Hundred yeah. miles an hour. All, all hell breaks loose. Right. I live at the far end of Waverly, at the last block. So it's much quieter. Yeah. But I do live on the street. Um, but yeah, uh, I think Phil never believed. I, I didn't. I, I never felt he got the was get, given the credit he deserved. Right. And I, I think that's true. I right. think that's accurate. I do. So, in 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 closing, yeah. I think about uh, certainly somebody like Phil Oaks. Yeah. And I think about the times that we live in today. Yes. And uh, are you surprised that at such a crazy time that we're living in that 
we're not seeing a bubbling under of, of music. I'm not saying it would be identical as yeah. the 60s, but uh, in its own form in 2022 and beyond. Does this surprise you? It stuns me. It stuns me that people aren't using their voice, that musicians are not using their voices more to protest in a poetic way or in any way more. When I say this to my students, they say, yeah, but there's this rapper who does it. I said, I know, but I've never heard it. Like, you know, there's a, one of the differences is that in the 60s, there were only three television networks and a certain limited number of radio stations in each town. And everyone was hearing the same music more so than today because now everyone has their own private channels and streaming services. And there's so many or networks, there's so many on cable, that you're, we're not all hearing the same messaging and the same songs, so that it's, you really have to go seek everything out. So it's spread out. So there, there are artists doing music of, with messages, but we don't, we're not all experiencing them together. We're not really experiencing any music together anymore. I mean, think of it this way, when The Doors went on, and this is not a Greenwich Village group, but it's at the same era, it's during the same time, when The Doors would go on the Ed Sullivan show or something, so many people of different ages and, every, and locations would see it at the same would see them at the same, or The Beatles, that's really in the book, would see them at the same time. So they would reach, the message would reach so many people. Uh, and now we don't have that. We don't have that, we have, we don't have that concentration of media. It's so spread out that it's hard to get a message through in the same way. I think that's part of it. But again, I don't see that many artists. I rare, I hear a lot of music. My students play music for me, my uh, friends, I hear, I hear new stuff daily and I haven't heard much I've heard very few songs that really address anything well maybe things will come uh, around well that's my one of my dedications of the book and I, it's for my to my mother and to my students and I say you know for my students may their music create a revolution of its own yep. I mean I really want this book I want this book to be a call to arms as well as a, a historical book I want it to be um an inspiration that you, we can't that things can change and that you can make things happen. I mean, this era that we're talking about in this book did change history. It cha- it opened up a lot of freedom for young people. It changed the way songwriters could write their own songs without record company inter- interference as much because before that you were given music to sing. A and R people would go choose your songs and then you just sing them. Yep. And this made it this this era in the, in the village change that dynamic forever. I think. Yep. Yeah. It's beautifully done. It's uh, all about the passion for music, which is what I love about it as well. Thank you. And uh, I totally believe others will love it. Yeah. Uh, Richard Barone, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, keep jamming. All right. Keep rocking. Will do. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Taking a walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu slash visit. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Angela Yee, host of Angela Yee's Lip Service. If you listen to my podcast, you know I love making space for women to be themselves. That's why I'm excited to be part of Women Take the Mic, iHeartRadio's celebration of the women who make music, influence change, and create culture. All month long, your favorite voices from talk radio, music, and podcasting will highlight the remarkable achievements made by women and discuss the most significant issues facing us today. Head to iHeartRadio.com slash Women's Day for more. And listen to Women Take the Mic on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.